And but for years I worked in in publishing uh, on the publicity side of things, and so you know my job was to take out the authors, take out the you know, and 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 to deal with the media um, and to wine and dine the media. And I took the wine uh, and the dine, but mostly the, the mostly the wine, really the, the martini part of it, uh, very seriously. <laughs> This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast. If you're looking to hear stories of hope, inspiration, and turning your greatest adversities into your advantage, well, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Jason Lachance, and through my addiction recovery and struggles with anxiety and depression, I dug into my passion of speaking with people who have transformed their lives. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button, and if you get a lot out of this podcast, share with a friend, and don't forget the archive of interviews we have. Bam Margera, Brandon Novak, Cat Fun. D, Charlie Sheen, Edward Furlong, Kelly Osborne, the list goes on and on of amazing guests that have been on the podcast sharing how they have found purposeful lives. Speaking of purpose, how about a lifestyle brand with purpose? 5150 LTM. That's right. Not only is it a lifestyle brand that can fit whatever it is you're trying to achieve in life, but they give back to the community. And you, the listener of Knocking Doors Down, get 20% off every time you shop at 5150 LTM. All you have to do is use the code KDD20 at checkout and get 20% off. And how does 5150 give back to the community? Portions of the sales benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation. Their three amazing programs, the race to end the stigma, the race for autism, and the race to be drug free. More on the Carlos Vieira Foundation, go to carlosvierafoundation.org. And my guest is Jamie Brickhouse, a natural raconteur, writer, comedic storyteller, TikTok sensation, and author of Dangerous When Wet, a memoir of booze, sex, and my mother. You may have seen one of his TikToks, hashtag story and heels videos, which has been seen over 5 million times, liked more than a million times, and has over 60,000 followers. I've been on his podcast, Sober Podcast, which is part of the Sober Network, and Jamie is a loud voice for addiction recovery. Jamie Brickhouse, thank you for joining me on Knocking Doors Down. So glad to be here, Jason. Yeah, you're one of my new favorite people, so I'm glad I get to talk to you. It's like <laughs> twice in a span of a, of a month or so. And Yeah, you were on the Sober Podcast, and it was a great interview. So glad to glad to be on the, on the uh, other end of the microphone, so to speak. Yeah, me too, because I think, you know, people need to hear more of not only your story, but your knowledge. And that's really what I'm going to be inquisitive about today. But I like to start with gratitude. I find anybody that is in long term recovery, gratitude is a big part of our daily life. So three things you're grateful for today. Uh, I'm grateful to be in Provincetown, Massachusetts. I'm here for a uh, gay sober roundup. And, and I've always wanted to to come for this because um, it's I've heard about it for years and never been able to make it for various reasons, but I finally made it and here I am. So I'm grateful for that. Uh, I'm grateful that it's sunny outside and I got to go for a four mile run uh, this morning and take in the great um, sights of this beautiful town. And what else am I grateful for? Uh, I'm grateful to be sober. Don't forget that. <laughs> That's interesting. You went for a run today. I got to ask you because, um, you know, if people may not know your story. You know, you, you, you've you worked in, in different industries and things like that. Been a, a high achiever in my estimation. 
Um, but it was kind of almost like alcohol is almost a, a business culture thing. So I'm interested, were you always into running before sobriety or is this something you integrated over your years of recovery? Um, I have been a runner off and on uh, since college. And, uh, but I, I also had, and when I say off and on, um, I mean, there were some serious off time, (laughs) 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 like long, like years of not running. Um, I started running in, in college. I got the, I got the freshman 15. Oh, yes. And, uh, and my mother, uh, mama Jean, you know, she said, oh, you got to run that run. will take that off and, and take that off. And I, and so I started doing it there. And, um, and then I would run off and on, but I, but in my drinking, uh, days, uh, which were many years, uh, I, I was not, I was not running. I was, I was going to the gym, uh, and not sticking with it and not being able to stick with it. But it wasn't until I got sober that I could, um, really stick with, um, with exercising, with going to the gym and uh and with running and and uh yeah i run about five miles um anywhere from three to five times three to five times a week uh but you know and you were saying about my about the my um drinking and how it was integrated into my uh career um i were i worked in publishing for many years and i mean i still do tangentially i work with i'm a, I'm a writer now but i also i have my own company a speakers bureau and i represent uh, mostly writers, authors for speaking engagements. And, but for years I worked in, in publishing, uh, on the publicity side of things. And so, you know, my job was to take out the authors, take out the, you know, and, and, and to deal with the media, um, and to wine and dine the media. And I took the wine, uh, and the dine, but mostly the, the mostly the wine, really the, the martini part of it, uh, very seriously. Uh, and I can relate to that. You know, I, I, it, when we had uh, conversed before, I believe we talked about, you know, I had a 20 year radio career, primarily rock radio. And so, you know, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you get to hang out with these rock stars that you like their music and you feel like you're part of the in crowd. It just yeah. became it, it, it was one of the additional things thrown into my life as an already insecure individual looking for validation. It was, uh, you know, just another one of those ingredients to to use and have an excuse. Oh yeah, it was definitely it was an excuse. Um, and I was like, oh, this is sanctioned drinking. You know, we're where I'm expected to drink. I'm expected to be the life of the party. I'm expect, you know, and um, I took that to to heart. And and I also, you know, but just like I was abusing alcohol, I was abusing the privilege. You know, I was, you know, I had a lot of, I had a lot of of drinking um, uh, P and E reports that didn't involve. Um, any of my author clients uh, or um, or members of the media. Right. <laughs> in other words, you know, it was me and my friends uh, for, <laughs> for a, a lot of those uh, padded expense accounts. Did, did substances come into your life uh, early on or were you kind of a late bloomer? Um, fairly early on, uh, I... Gosh, well, you know, think about it. Uh, before I had a drink, um, I never, I've never really, I guess I thought about it, but I haven't articulated it. Before I had a drink, um, I had, uh, I smoked pot when I was about in fifth grade. My brother, I had an older brother, eight years older, and he got me to try it. And 
I remember I smoked it out of like I think a corn a cob pipe from my that I had from a Popeye doll. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't like it. I, or I, you know what? I didn't. I don't think I smoked it right. And I, I smoked it right, and I and I don't think I even got high um, from that. But um, in high school, um, I smoked, and then I did smoke pot occasionally, but it was never. Um, and I'm trying to think if I did any other drugs in high school when I was drinking. Uh, and then in college, though, I started experimenting with drugs. So um, ecstasy. Oh, no, high school. I did ecstasy my senior year in prom and loved it. Uh, and then did did it off and on, you know, in, in, in high school. I mean, in college and um, and into my uh, 20s and 30s. But uh, and in college, I started. So it was really in college that I started seriously experimenting with drugs. So it was ecstasy, cocaine, uh, LSD, um and uh and drugs were sprinkled out throughout the rest of my my drinking mm-hmm. you know career but alcohol was my my first in love and at the end of my drinking um i was only drinking i wasn't doing any drugs anymore yeah that i can relate to that very much um yeah it just it it, it seemed that any other type of of chemical got in the way mhm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, at the end, I was drinking so much and it was I was so physically addicted to it that I really couldn't handle the other drugs. There were two. Oh. It was, you know, it was just it was too much, uh, even for me. Uh, yeah, and, and pot, by the way. Um, I never liked pot, but I smoked it every day for about 15 years uh, because um, I had a partner who liked pot and he had it. And, and so if it was there, I did it, but when it wasn't around I, and it was a high, I never really enjoyed. Um, but I, ne- but I never thought about it when it wasn't around and I never once bought it and I never sought it out, but that just shows you what an alcoholic addict is. Like if it's there, well, of course, why wouldn't you do it? I mean, you have to do it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we're, we're, we're garbage cans. Some of us, we're just like, right, right. all right. I mean, you know, like people have asked me when I've, when I dabbled, it's like, yeah, pills, some powders and things like that. But it was never a purchase. It was just like, yeah, oh, it's there. Somebody's like, oh, hey, I got this script and it'll, you know, you're in back pain. Here you go. All right. That's cool. I'll wash it down with a <laughs> six pack of beer at least, you know. So it was uh, I was very much kind of that garbage can addict in that way that it's I had my primary. My right. love was alcohol. But those other things, if it was available. All right. Sure. Why not? And, oh, but, you know, the, the, uh, that I would never do heroin and I never did. Mm. Um, and I, I, I wonder though, if I had been, but I was also never offered it. I was never exposed to, I was never in a situation. And I think, you know, if I had been drunk and or high enough and it had been around, I may, I may have done it. So knocking doors down by Carlos Vieira. Now available wherever you get audiobooks. I wasn't done partying, and I didn't want the binge to end. I think I knew that when I finally got home, I'd have to face what I had done, and I wasn't ready to do that. Being responsible for my actions wasn't something I was looking forward to. I had abandoned my wife and baby, my family, and my business. I wanted to avoid the shame of returning to what I had left behind. Even though I was not yet going home, I wasn't sure I had enough resources to continue the binge. Click the link in the podcast description to find out more. 
I've pondered that too. Um, I, I never had never heroin or meth. Um, but I had, I had had a minor procedure prescribed oxy and it made me really sick and I threw up and Mm-hmm. Most people, when I tell that, they're like, me too. And then I became an oxy addict. I was like, no, 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 no. It takes me like 20 drinks to at least get to the point of throw up. Uh, I'll go for that route. And it yeah, just, yeah. whatever reason, that never clicked. Cocaine, any of those, it just never clicked. That it was like, ooh, I really want to do that again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I did. I did like the door. Like, I, I liked uh, uh, ecstasy, or the kids call it Molly now. And although I hear it's a little bit different. Um, but, um, I, that I, I very much enjoyed and sought out, um, cocaine. I did, uh, I liked it, but it was a love hate. And it was one of those where I was afraid, like I, I also said I would never do it, you know, because I, I knew how addictive it was. And I had seen people, um, my parents age and, uh, had, um, you know, were destroyed by it or their lives were ruined by it. And I said, I'd never do it. And then, you know, I was in college and someone had it and I did it and I was like, oh, it's great. And then it was a love hate, you know, like I do it and then, you know, and, and have the worst hangovers of my life the next morning because I was also drinking. So you have the drinking and the, you know, the booze and the drug hangover. And um, and I would say, oh, that's horrible. I'm never going to do that again because I this I feel so awful. But I would. <laughs> For you was. um you know, and we talked about it when I, when I was on on your podcast, um, and I'll include that link in the description in case, in case people missed it or have yet to subscribe because you do just uh, awesome work, wonderful guests, and uh, always informative. Oh, but, uh, you know, I spoke a little, you know, I definitely see the trauma and the lineage of addiction for me that really mm-hmm. led me down that path. Was it kind of similar for you or were you just someone that it was like peer pressure and then all of a sudden you're like, well, I'm off to the races? No, it was to drink before, by the time I was five. Mm. Um, I, to me, it was the, it was about being an adult and I was a precocious child uh, and I was more comfortable being around my parents and their friends than I was my peers. And, uh, you know, I just saw childhood as a waste of time (laughs) and I (laughs) wanted to bypass it and go straight to adulthood. And I liked what I saw uh, on in old movies and TV shows like Bewitched and where they drank and part and par- I like parties and and my parents entertained a lot and and so I just thought you know an al- I was so I, I glamorized alcohol from a very young age and saw it as as being an adult you know and that's what you, that's I wanted to be an adult and you got to dress up and you got to go par- go, go to parties which also meant that you drank and. Uh, so I also saw alcohol as a, as a fast ticket to adulthood. So I started drinking when I was 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it was something I wanted to do most of my life, you know, most of my, most of my childhood, I just saw it as something as, as glamorous and fun. So I didn't, it didn't come out of, of trauma or a way to escape. Um, you know, ultimately, I mean, I certainly, did use it as a way to escape um, uh, before I even realized it. Uh, And, uh, you know, and I embraced it. And I think, and for me, I think I, um, I think the disease of alcoholism is a, is a gene trait or I inherited it, you know, from my um, father's side of the family. Uh, He was, he was a drinker, uh, probably an alcoholic, and there was there's a lot of other um, uh, 
uh, heritage of drinking uh, on my father's side of the family. And um, so I also think I was wired for it. Well, and I had spoken um, here on the podcast with a neuropsychologist. He also was an alcoholic or is an alcoholic in recovery, however you want to label it. And uh, he said there's definitely studies that there's some people you just cannot drink your way into alcoholism. It's just it, 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 there is something about that genetic makeup for us, the way we process the ethyl alcohol and right. what it does. Like, I don't know about you. It sounds like you were very similar People would always be amazed, like, dude, aren't you tired? Like, no, it gives me energy. I'm ready to go. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I was also, you were talking about uh, throwing up earlier that it would take you a while, many drinks for you to get to that point. I was proud of that. I mean, I didn't enjoy throwing up, but I, I often did off and after several drinks. But for a lot of people, then uh, in a lot of alcoholics are, are people who drink, then that's the end of the evening. But for me, I was I was proud of the fact that I could throw up and go, you know, so I would do that. And then and then it was like, oh, okay, now it's like a clean plate um, and, uh, you know, and continue drinking. Um, Yeah, I definitely had compatriots that it was like, dude, you're awesome. That's gnarly. Like it it became like, yeah, (laughs) it was like supported. I mean, you know, hanging out with guys are outweighing me by a hundred pounds and I'm drinking them under the table. And it it was that additional validation, you know, like, Oh, it's always going to be a good time when Jason's around. Yeah. Yeah. I had that validation too. Like, Oh yeah. You're like the party. And, you know, and, and people were used to seeing me with a martini um, always at the end of my right hand, you know? Right. <laughs> and it just, I mean, you're <laughs> for people that don't follow you on social media. I mean, you like, I would love if I had a couple thousand dollars and said, Jamie, take me shop and make me look like an adult, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> because you always got it together. And I and it's really interesting how you you explain that parallel from childhood, like the bewitched and the shows come home and the martinis made for the dad. And right, it, right. It, it's 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 so fascinating how we in addiction, many of us build this story about ourselves and then carry it out. You know, yeah, that's a good point where we where we kind of um, em- embrace the story and then it becomes self-fulfilling, you know. Uh, and, you know, it's funny about uh, one other thought, a uh, uh, slightly different tangent, but back to what we were saying about um, the cause of, mm-hmm. of alcoholism or the, you know, whether it's inherited or not. And, um, you know, Carol Burnett, uh she famously does not drink and that in her her parents were alcoholics and she was raised by her grandmother because her parents were uh, unable to, to take care of her. And because of her, of, of that, she never drank. And to, and I knowing what I, when I've observed, uh, what I've observed from other alcoholics in recovery, many of them, their story is, Oh, I saw the way my parents, behaved on alcohol and drugs and i t- told myself that i would never do that but then you know i did and then i became you know and then i took off and now here i am and i think in like someone like carol burnett i think she was probably not she probably didn't ha- inherit the gene or the trait or the you know or the disease whatever you call it you know because i don't think if she had or someone like that uh, i'm just using her as an example because she's a famous example but I don't think if she had the gene or the trait, 
even even if she was able to say, oh, I don't want to do that because of what it did to my parents. I don't think, you know, but if you had one drink, you'd be off to the races, um, despite logic and despite um, your commitment not to do that. You know, it, it's stronger than you are. Yeah. No, I very valid point because and I don't think I've talked about, it. you know, my brother, he's a quote unquote normie. You know, mm-hmm. it's never an issue for him. And then um, I have some cousins that, yes, very clearly an issue and some that aren't. And, you know, it runs on both sides of the family. So I, I, I think you have an incredibly valid point there that some people it hits and some it doesn't. You know, my brother can go. Yeah. I think he's on like this 90 day challenge right now for himself with physical fitness and, and you know, not having a drink or two on the weekend with his wife as part of that. And so he can go the 90 days and it's like, meh, yeah, no big deal. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I could do it. So. <laughs> right. yeah, well, uh, it's an all or nothing for me. And I'm glad I'm nothing for the last, it'll be 15 years in December. So uh, I love it. Yeah. Same. I had somebody the other day go like, are you sure you're an alcoholic? And I just looked at him and I went, well, I'm going to tell you this. Uh, I'm not going to attempt it. So I'll rather go through life believing I'm an alcoholic than test it because my life's pretty <laughs> damn good. You know? Yeah. I'm, yeah coming up on my longest term of sobriety and like things have changed, you know, and I, right. and I, I want to ask you about that, you know, because you're so active in the recovery community. How do you talk with, with newcomers about it? I, I try to explain, look, you're going to suck at this at first and that's okay. Um, how do I talk to, I, well, first of all, I just, I tell my story, um, hmm. um, or a bit of my story so they know, uh, uh, hopefully this so they can relate. And so they, you know, uh, know that, um, I too have done some of the things that they have probably done and are experiencing. And, um, and part of that story is letting them know how difficult it was for me to get sober. You know, I, um, uh, first tried to get sober 20 years ago and, um, and I tell them about that and how I, you know, didn't fully commit to the to the program and and decided that, uh, and after a few months decided I was a functioning alcoholic, which I guess I was, and to, and I and I made the decision. I was like, oh, as long as the word functioning is in front of alcoholic, I'm okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> and what I didn't understand or or accept um, was the idea that um, it's a progressive disease and that it gets worse and so i continued to drink and my life got worse than it did than it was when i first decided to get sober and or tried to get sober and um and uh and then even after that you know when i bottomed out on a suicide attempt and then went to rehab for 60 days um it still took me two years um to to finally get completely sober uh and um yeah. And so I share, I talk about those and I talk about those relapses and I had one sponsee who was very similar to me and with, with, um, relapsed a lot. Um, and, um, you know, so I, I told him my story and about how, how difficult that is, but that you just, um, but the important part is you can always come back, uh, and you can always keep trying. So the thing I've kind of adopted and try to explain is the, um, the echoes of life, um, to some of these newer guys or people if I'm mm-hmm. working with them directly and 
you know, it's it's like destruction's really quick. You know, you think about like a skyscraper or building and then, you know, maybe two years to build. But then the, if they're going to, you know, demolish it, well, that's a pretty quick process. And so I try to explain to them, you know, tell me if this resonates with you, that, that like the echoes you put out, the next right thing, it might take quite some time. Like things that I, I did almost three years ago after my last relapse are starting to come to fruition now, mm -hmm. you know? So it's, it's, it's in that doing the next right thing. Like, you, you know, you, you were getting, you had a system of instant gratification and that shit's going away. Now we got to switch <laughs> your mind to this echoes of life and doing the next right thing, the being yeah. of service and, and it's going to take time. And I think that's a real long-term payback. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, well, it's, t I think it's tough in American society alone, uh, let alone when you're in recovery. Yeah. I, I mean, th I think you're right. Um, and, and I, yeah, I love the, 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 the talking about how, how fast, how fast destruction is, you know, and it's even, even like, like a meal, you know, a home cooked meal. So think about, you know, how long it may have taken you anywhere from an hour to all day, um, to cook a meal. And then how long does it take you to consume it? <laughs> you know, like that and it's gone uh, yeah if it's my girlfriend's chicken parmesan it's gone real fast mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. let me ask you you know because you're at an event that uh that right now and i'm seeing i don't i don't get the opportunity and maybe it's just where i live it's very rural that not enough of the lbgtq plus community um comes to maybe more generalized meeting that i'm attending but mm -hmm. those that I do meet, I, I see a lot of a lot of trauma, not necessarily in the childhood, but but in in being themselves in, in how society hopefully is accepting, but we know isn't always the case. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what what are kind of I don't know, I'm looking for some 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 nuggets of wisdom there because I have had uh listeners that have reached out and asked, you know, hey, I'm I'm uh, I'm a gay man and I haven't heard you talk to someone that's gay. Can you, you know, connect with someone there? Maybe some of that wisdom for them that I, I think, although we're all human, there comes a dif different set of challenges. Yeah, um, I think one of those challenges, um, uh, well, there are many, but, uh, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, acceptance is a part of uh, accepting who you are can be difficult when so many people around you don't accept um lgbtq people or trans people or lesbians or gay men or whatever the case you know whoever you are and so that that's very um difficult and if you're you know um crying for alcohol and drug use um you know that's yet another another reason to uh to escape and um and also in the um lgbtq culture especially um with in the gay male world um alcohol and drugs are um glamorized even more so you know and for many years you know gay bars were the really the only place uh, that that um that we could meet you know and 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 explore ourselves so there was often you know the sanctioned um alcohol and and often um, um, heavily promoted and, you know, that, that lifestyle. And so if you're already struggling 
um, with alcohol and drugs. And then you're in this culture that celebrates it um, and encourages it. It makes it uh, that much harder to, um, to get sober. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're in that, and if you're in that space. Well, and I think I have a friend and his dating history, we were having a conversation and I'm like, well, every time you go out, when you're looking for, uh, you know, a man to, that you want to take interest in and him take interest in you, it seems to me there's always some alcohol there. And I'm going to tell you, <laughs> you know, like and maybe just, a few lines, too. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I'm like, just give this a little bit of, the, of a thought mm-hmm. is that, you know, a most of us first date, we're on best behavior, already nervous, maybe, you know, over inflating who we are, you know, all these different things. But then you take in alcohol and it tells you so many different stories. It's like maybe try to find something, you know, that. It's a sober environment to try to meet someone because he's he's like, I don't know what it is. The gay community in the Bay Area, I, I can't seem to find a good man. And I was like, well, maybe change your picker and your circumstances for it. And, and it right, might shift, right. you know. Um, and I think that's just that's hard in general for people. It is hard in general. And, you know, I mean, I, I know that uh, people of all stripes um, often, you know, some one of the things uh, that they have to get used to once they get sober is having sex sober oh um because a lot of people didn't do it you know before but uh, but it seems to be um more of an issue with um and i'm speaking from what i the who i know the most from the lgbt community which is gay men uh it seems to be even more of an issue with gay men because of what we were just saying so alcohol and drugs is so much a part of the culture and they were an alcoholic as well (laughs) Um, and that was, you know, always around. So it, it, that's something that is really, you know, can, can be monumental, um, yeah. in sobriety is, is sex, you know, yeah. and having it sober. And, and, and then of course being the, the drugs, I wasn't, I, I used, I, I, I did crystal meth a few times, but I never went, um, uh, never became addicted to it or was, uh, you know, a, a, a regular user of it. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, and that, uh, a lot of times that, that, I mean, alcohol and drugs can be tied up with sex anyway. Um, and I mean, like for me, cocaine was often, um, mm-hmm. uh, tied up with sex or if I did, if I did cocaine, I wanted to have sex. Um, and, uh, with crystal meth, that's a, a big issue, especially with gay men, because it's often used for that, you know, for, for, for sexual purposes. And a lot of, um, crystal meth users have a hard time that's one of the biggest problems and, and often many of them relapse. Uh, many guys, uh, crystal meth addicts relapse because of the sex, sexual component. Oh, it play. I uh, thank you for bringing that up. It plays a, 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 a huge vital role. Um, and I personally with me, and I don't remember if we shared it when we were talking on, on your podcast, you know, going through what I did in my childhood, uh, you know, molestation exposed to porno, hardcore oh, pornography right. yeah. at a very early age. It was really, cha- it, it still is at times challenging for mm-hmm. me. I, I even noticed it last night, you know, my lovely girlfriend, she's just being sweet and in touch. She wasn't necessarily alluding to, you know, wanting any full blown sexual activity, but I noticed myself tense up and it's, it's still something that I have to deal with, you know, even as a hetero male and how it played 
into my sexual choices. You know, that's that was yeah. stuff that I really had to deal with. I I did some sex and love addiction anonymous to to really try to understand better as well as in addition to to therapy. So it's um it's a huge challenge going into that sobriety. I think that's why oftentimes we recommend the go a year sober before you even really kind of consider dating, you know? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It is a good um I think it's a good uh suggestion to take if you can if you can do it how about you did it was um i mean have relationships gotten easier has has just being in your own skin gotten easier oh yeah being in my own skin has definitely gotten easier and um and uh i'm much more um confident about who i am uh and Ah, and accepting things. Now that's, I mean, I still, you know, I still struggle with, with low self-esteem from time to time or, you know, but, but I don't, um, I don't need alcohol or drugs to, um, escape from bad feelings or to make, um, to make good feelings feel better. Uh, and, um, and I, I think, Thankfully, you know, um, having uh, sexual relations, I, I, you know, long since um, have not needed alcohol or drugs to be a part of that. But what I have done, you know, I, um, you know, occasionally there were times when I would um, early on in sobriety, if I would uh, hook up with someone uh, that I, you know, that I know, but, you know, through, through an app or something like that, and they might be drunk or worse on you know high and i would i would i would say oh that's fine i'm not gonna i'm not gonna do that but you know it's okay if you do and i didn't thank god but i didn't need to be in those situations um uh and not only were they were they dangerous and possibly triggering but um they also weren't fun you know, <laughs> <No>. just, <laughs> just to be with someone who is on a whole different plane than you. And also, I, you know, and I didn't enjoy being you know, in somebody's space where there was drug paraphernalia around and, and they couldn't concentrate because they were more interested in being high than in having sex. And so, you know, I, I, then I cut that out. And the rule was, you know, if someone said that they were, um, we're using i said oh you know thanks but no thanks and, yeah you know moved on uh no I, I i something i've not shared so yeah i was when i was attempting the dating hard to find uh sober women in my area it just is just just mm-hmm. seems to be and uh so dating a lady that she said she was a an occasional drinker so you know did a couple dates seemed good and then you know finally the the home visit because i had rules I was like, you may not be the only person I want to date. So it's, you know, no hand holding, no goodnight kiss. Like I'm getting to know people. I'm getting to know yeah, myself yeah. dating as a sober person. Well, and then there was that drinking a little bit too much, got her home. And then, you know, the the proposition that followed by a display of actions. And it was like, wow, it was a, it was a click moment for me going, I'm a completely different person now. I said, I'm sorry this is not comfortable for me. I'm going to have to go. Yeah. You know, and buddy's like, Oh man, come on. She was hot. It's like, I don't care. This felt, yeah. it felt <laughs> it just the whole scenario felt terrible, wrong, mm-hmm. uh, 
disingenuous you know it was just it was just it was just completely inauthentic like we all know alcohol is a great drug for lowering your inhibitions and the anxieties exactly. around your decision yeah. making so <laughs> it was like no i want to get the hell out of there yeah it's not worth it right you know no, no. let me ask you about the book when did you finally decide it was the right time to, to write your book and share well i um to um, uh, be an artist as a as a writer and a performer, and uh, and I did not, and I kind of dabbled in. I mean, I, I I did both those, pursued both those things in high school and college, and then the alcohol took over, you know. And I didn't, I had time for my my career, my job um, that was paying the bills and, and the booze. And then I, I stopped writing and performing altogether. And when I got sober and I was about a year or so sober, a friend of mine who was working at, for a um, travel magazine, he asked me to, to, to write a, a piece uh, about a New York restaurant and um, that I loved. And I did. And, and it really felt good, you know, to write. It was just a short little, you know, not even a, uh, I don't know, 500 words, maybe not even if, if that much. And, but it got published and I was proud of it. And, um, and I wrote a couple other things. And then a friend of mine who uh, I used to work with in publishing, she was an editor and she read it. She said, Oh, this is really good. If you're interested in doing in writing more. And at this point I was thinking about writing a memoir and, um, and my mother, mama Jean had died. And I was, um, I guess, two years sober and she was a year gone. And uh, so this friend said, you know, if you're interested, this friend of mine, Phyllis just retired from the Columbia university uh, creative writing program and starting her own workshop. And I enrolled and, um, and I needed the, the, I was so glad that I need that I went into that workshop because I needed it just like I needed rehab, um, you know, that just meetings alone, weren't going to be enough for me. I needed to be removed, but I needed that writing workshop to have um, a sanctioned environment that said you can write here um, and to give me deadlines, you know, so that I would show up every week with, with pages to, um, and then to get the, you know, the feedback and the validation. And I, so I built my confidence as a writer and I realized I did have a book in me uh, in a memoir and um, gosh, I rolled in that class in 2010. And then my first memoir, dangerous when wet, a memoir of boo sex and my mother came out in 2015. So that was the, that's the evolution. So uh, long answer to no, your question. That's uh, the answer I was hoping for. I, f I find it uh, really fascinating that process. And, and, but you know what, kind of, kind of what you were saying about the echoes about doing the next right thing. And that it, you know, and it takes it, it takes it a while for you to see that um, that payback and that fruition. What's some of your favorite responses that you've gotten around the book? Oh God, um, there have been a variety of diverse responses because um, you know the book is is about my alcoholism written through the prism of my relationship with my mother mama jean and so um i've heard from a lot of of alcoholics in recovery um who uh some people say that it helped them get sober 
um, you know, that they were struggling to get sober and which that I love. I mean, that those are some of my favorite responses. Um, you know, cause to tell you the truth, when I wrote it, I didn't write it. I didn't say, Oh, I want to write this because I want to help people. I wanted to write it because I wanted to express myself as an artist. And this was the story I needed to tell. And of course I soon realized that of course this might also help people as well as maybe entertain them and, and, and move them. And, um, cause it's written with a lot of humor, um, darkly comic and uh so knowing that it that it's helped people to get sober or stay sober by hearing my story and and what i went through and what i did to get sober and um then i also heard from a lot of uh, mothers um who related who really love the mother-son story or mother-child story that i'm telling in there but um and then mothers of addicts and alcoholics and it did it really has helped them to understand um, addiction and to understand their children. So. That's a beautiful gift that, um, you know, it, I, I know your love for performance and, and, and writing and stuff started pretty early on in your life. And it's really interesting how those things can come to fruition and, and unintentionally be of such great service to people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know for me, you know, as a kid that grew up kind of in the middle of the no of nowhere, you know, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas changed my life along with the radio. So I would have never predicted, you know, 40 <laughs> years later, right. you know, uh, those things to, to be something. But yeah, well, no, it's great. It's great just doing being yourself and um, and doing what you love to do uh, can help other people. Well, we'll put the link in the podcast description as well for people if they want to get the book. Jamie, we're going to jump into some fun random questions, and I'm going to ask you for the final thoughts. Are you ready, good sir? I'm ready. All right. Uh, if you could have dinner with any one person, living or not, who would they be and why? Oh, God. Um, that is such a big question. Uh, Joan Crawford, um, because she I love old movies, and she's my absolute favorite uh, movie star. And... Um, and I would like to, I, I hear he was also a, a, probably an alcoholic and a big drinker, yeah. but I heard, I heard that she stopped drinking in the last year of her life and, and oh, wow. uh, she died of cancer. Um, and I also heard that when a doctor tried to, uh, she called on a friend, a doctor friend to, to help her get sober and he wanted her to go to AA. And she said, Oh, you can't, can you imagine me going to a meeting saying I'm Joan Crawford? I'm an alcoholic. I don't oh. think I can do that. She never did. Um, but I would, so I'd like to, I would like to have a dinner with Joan Crawford and I would like to have it in the last year of her life. Um, and while she's sober and, and to, uh, and, and have a conversation about alcohol. If, uh, if you can recollect, uh, worst advice you received early in your recovery and best advice. Oh, worst advice. Um, worst advice I was, uh, I was sharing in a meeting um, that I had I had recently relapsed, and I started talking about why I what I learned from that relapse and why I thought it was good. And the and the speaker um, cut me off and said, uh, "You're not ready to share." Um, uh, it, and uh, you know, because I, I can't remember exactly what he said, but he didn't like that I was saying that my relapse was a good thing, and so he cut me off. Um, and uh, said you shouldn't be sharing that or something like something to that extent. So that was the worst advice. And it almost, and I almost went out over it and I sure. left the meeting, but luckily someone came out 
and talk to me and I didn't drink. Um, and so the best advice, you can always drink tomorrow. Huh. I've not heard that one. Don't drink today. You can always drink tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a good one. I've not heard that. I'm going to, I'm going to use that at least three times and assimilate it. Okay. Yeah. And you know what? I just an aside on that. Um, I, uh, am a two time suicide attempt survivor. Mm-hmm. And, um, my advice to anyone who is thinking seriously about, um, about suicide is the same advice, which is you can always kill yourself tomorrow. Just don't do it today. No, thank you for sharing that. Um, because the, you know what? Usually the, the usually that feeling will pass. That need to drink or that need to end it all. Um, and by by the next day, you may not need that. Yeah. And if you do, then put it off another day. Yeah, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you just put just push it to another day. Come exactly. on, that's when to procrastinate. right that's that's where we want to go with that um i always enjoy this one uh if you're stranded on deserted island and you had uh one movie with you one music artist greatest hits and i'm gonna throw in one book all right you think now you're gonna think i well i don't care what you're gonna think but um (laughs) the one movie would be Mildred Pierce, which is a Joan, Ca- Joan Crawford movie for which she won an Oscar. It's also kind of film noir, and film noir is my favorite genre <laughs> of movie. So I've often said that if I could only watch one genre of movie for the rest of my life, it would be film noir. So I would have to pick Mildred Pierce because it's film noir and because it's Joan Crawford and it's such a good movie um, on many on on several levels. Uh, and um, and I would pick <laughs> for the book, Joan Crawford, My Way of Life, which is this book she wrote uh, in 72 or 71. And it's very campy and like in circle. It's a it's a cult classic and people, you know, uh, read it out loud because of the, you know, some of the crazy advice that she um, uh, just, it, um, administers in that book. And uh, but it's also just funny. And I've read it like three times and, and I would. I would just always be entertained by it um, on that desert island. And then what was the third one? So a musical artist, um, not Joan Crawford, not <laughs> Joan Crawford. Okay. Um, <laughs> so wait, let's see. Hmm, gosh, no, this is a tough one because I really like music and the big part of my life. Oh gosh. Um, I think it would be Nancy Wilson. There are a lot of singers I love and a lot of artists I love, but Nancy Wilson, she has a beautiful, uh, clear voice. She sang um, in the 50s into the 80s, from the 1950s into the 1980s. Uh, So she sang American Popular Standards, which is my favorite um, uh, genre of music. And she sang so many uh, uh, different of those songs. So if I if if I was stuck with Nancy Wilson on that island, I'd be a happy um, uh, island refugee. Yeah. Right on. Well, uh, Jamie, this is the time where I give you the floor. If you want to share anything um, 
you know, what, there's everything from people struggling, new to their recovery, long-term and loved ones of, of, of people or those struggling with mental health as well tune in quite often. That's where I get the most feedback, actually, um, that you just might want to lend some words of wisdom. Um, you know, I would say to, to um, always keep trying, uh, you know, if you, if you, if you want to get sober, if you want to, um, uh, deal with any issues you're having, uh, don't give up, uh, and, and keep seeking, uh, help. And, um, and if you, um, fall off the, um, the wagon, so to speak, that old term, um, you know, you can always get back on and you can always restart your day. Also remember that, you know, if, if things are going really shitty and, uh, you're like starting to lose hope because of, you know, because of the bad first half of the day you had, remember, you can just say, Oh, you know what? I'm going to write that off and let's restart this and recharge it. You don't have to wait until tomorrow to do that. Absolutely. Jamie Brickhouse. Thank you. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Jason. And I'm uh, the pleasure was mine. So thanks for having me on your show. On that note, everybody, keep knocking doors down. This is the Knocking Doors Down podcast, featuring celebrities, experts, and everyday people who have overcome adversities, including addiction, mental health, and trauma, to live purposeful lives. And that's what Knocking Doors Down is all about. Knocking